0: being seated, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I'll read for us verses 1 through 12. And uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 809 and 810. 809 and 810. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that we've been considering the theme of discipleship as we have been looking at the Beatitudes our series is entitled, The Kingdom of the King, the Kingdom, and the Path. And as you notice in the title, there's really three parts to our series. We began by thinking about the kingdom, and in doing so, we took eight weeks to look at each one of the Beatitudes. And then we spent two weeks thinking about the King, King Jesus, and who He is. And we saw that Jesus is the new Moses, and Jesus is the blessed man. And now we are taking two Sundays to consider the path, or we could say the way, of the kingdom. And last week we looked at the path or the way that we must take to experience the blessed life of the kingdom. We must trust in Christ and we must build our lives on His Word. And then this week, which is the last Sunday in our series on the Beatitudes, we will consider the alternative path to the blessed life. In other words, what is in store for us if we do not enter the way of the kingdom through Jesus and we do not build our lives on His Word? And therefore, our message is entitled this morning, The Alternative to the Blessed Life. Now, what I'm going to do is read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, which we've done each week in our series on the Beatitudes, and then in a few moments, we're going to turn to Matthew 23. And uh, we're going to consider the alternative life that is laid out in Matthew chapter 23. But I'll begin in Matthew 5. We'll read that. I'll make a few comments, and then we'll turn to Matthew 23. So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. I don't know if uh, you have experienced this before or noticed this before, but when you're traveling in a big city and uh, you're traveling on the interstate, you're going down one road, uh, maybe you're going down I-20 West, and you want to stay on that road. You want to stay on I-20 West, and you see that there's an exit, and the exit is for I-20 West. So you say, okay, well, I'm going to exit there to stay on this road. And then sometimes uh, when you do that, there are places where you exit off on I-20 West, and you look over to the left, and you realize that I-20 West is running parallel to you. So and you go down the exit maybe a quarter of a mile or half a mile, and then it merges back onto the I-20 West. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe that's just me. So you're going down I-20 West, and you exit off, and then you exit back onto the same road. And I don't know why that's, the roads are designed that way. I've never figured it out, but I'm sure there's some good reason. Well, as we've been studying the Beatitudes, we have seen that the Scriptures teach us that there are two paths that we can choose in this life there are two ways to live. One path leads to life and blessing. The other path leads to death and destruction. But it's also important for us to realize that the path that leads to death and destruction has a fork in it, and there's two ways to go. They lead to the same destination, but there are two distinct paths. One is a path of rebellion, and the other is the path of religion and they both lead to destruction. It's easier for us to see that a life of open rebellion against God and His commands leads to destruction. However, oftentimes it's more difficult for us to discern that a life of well-intentioned but empty religion leads to destruction. What we'll see in our passage this morning is that Jesus pronounces blessing over a life of genuine discipleship but Jesus pronounces woe over a life of vain religious activity. We see this woe in Matthew chapter 23, so you can go ahead and turn there to Matthew chapter 23. And as you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a larger context of this, uh, the larger context for this passage in the gospel of Matthew as a whole. So, the gospel of Matthew includes five blocks of teaching, Five major blocks of teaching, we can call them sermons, and the Gospel of Matthew is organized around these five major blocks of teaching. The first sermon, the first block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, verse, uh, chapters five through seven, where we find the Beatitudes, and Jesus's last block of teaching or last sermon in. Uh, Matthew's gospel, is his teaching on the end times, and that's found in Matthew chapter 23 through chapter 25. Now, it's interesting because the first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the Beatitudes, pronouncements of blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And the last sermon, which begins here in chapter 23, begins with woes pronouncements of grief and disaster. Therefore, these two sermons stand in contrast with one another. The first one, pronouncements of blessing for those who receive the kingdom and enter into the kingdom at Jesus' invitation. And the last sermon, pronouncements of woes to those who reject the kingdom and instead choose to go their own way. Now, as we come to this last sermon In Matthew's Gospel, who is it that rejects the Messiah? Who is it that rejects the kingdom of God? And surprisingly, what we find is that it is the religious leaders. The religious leaders of Jesus' day who have persistently rejected Jesus in favor of their empty religion. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 23... And we're going to look at it in three parts. First of all, we're going to consider who are the religious leaders. Secondly, we will consider seven woes pronounced upon the religious leaders. And then third and finally, we will consider a word of warning and hope. So first of all, who are the religious leaders? Look there in chapter 23 and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 and read to verse 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long." And they love the place of honor at feast, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." So, in verses 1 and 2, you see that Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he's speaking to his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, they were the religious class in Jesus' day, they were the religious scholars or the clergy. And Jesus acknowledges here that both the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, what does that mean? Well, Moses' seat represents the authority of the religious leaders to teach and to interpret the law of Moses. It would be similar to someone holding the chair of philosophy at a university or similar to a pulpit in a local church. It was a symbol of authoritative teaching. But notice that Jesus warns the people against the religious leaders of His day. He goes on in verse 3 to say, Do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do." In other words, Jesus says, listen to them, but do not emulate them. Hear what they have to say, but do not follow their example. And then Jesus goes on to give three reasons why they should not follow the example of the religious leaders. He says, first, because they preach, but do not practice. Secondly, because they burden, but do not lift. And third, because they do, but only to be seen by others. Notice this in the text. In verse three, the first reason, they preach, Jesus says, but do not practice. In the Greek, the original language, we could translate this verse literally they speak and do not do. Or today we might say they talk the talk, but do not walk the walk. The second reason why they should not follow the example of the religious leaders. Is because they burden but do not lift. Look there in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, they demand much of others, but they require little of themselves. And then the third reason why the people should not follow the example of the religious leaders is because they do, but only to be seen by others. And Jesus spends a good bit of time explaining what He means here. Notice in verse 5, they do their deeds to be seen by others. So, whenever they do command, obey the commands of God and obey their own traditions, they do so not for God's glory, but for their own self-glorification. And then Jesus expounds on this, and He explains that they seek the praise of others in their clothing and their position and in their titles. So, notice they seek the praise of others in their clothing. Look there at verse 5, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, a phylactery was a small box that was made of leather, and inside the box uh, there were Scripture passages that were written on small parchments. And these phylacteries could be attached to one's arm or even one's forehead. And this practice developed in response to an overly literal interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. In Deuteronomy 6, 8, Moses is speaking about the commands of God, and he says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And as a result of a very literal interpretation of this text, phylacteries were created and used. And then Jesus speaks of the fringes on their garments. Now, this is a reference to Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 39. There we read, the Lord says, "'Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels or fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord.'" So, on their garments, they were commanded to put uh, these fringes or tassels, uh, uh, as I understand it, on the four corners of their garments. They were small tassels, and they were to be reminders to the people to obey God's Word. Now, the phylacteries and fringes were not sinful in and of themselves, right? In fact, these uh, tassels were commanded in the Scriptures for the people to do this. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that the religious leaders had chosen to make the phylacteries extra wide and the tassels on their garments extra long so that people would notice them and be impressed with their spirituality. I remember years ago going to a Muslim nation. I visited a number of Muslim nations. and One of the things that Muslims do is they practice praying to Allah five times a day. Not all Muslims do that, but many do. And those who uh, engage in that practice, whenever the call of prayer would come, they would roll out their rugs, they would stop doing what they do. They have these small prayer rugs and they would kneel down on their knees and then they would press their foreheads to the ground and they would pray in the direction, in the direction of Mecca to Allah. And some of the men who uh, prayed, they would press their heads down very hard, their foreheads on the ground on their prayer rug. And over time doing that, they would develop a knot on their forehead that had a callus on it. And so when you saw them, of course the intention was that you would honor them because of their great faithfulness in prayer. We do things like this today, don't we? Someone might think to themselves, I'm only going to wear T-shirts with Christian messages on them, like God's gym. Or a woman might think to herself, my skirt goes much further down my leg than yours. Or a pastor might say, I'm a minister, so I'm going to wear a special collar and a three-piece suit so you'll know what a big deal I am. And again, none of these things are wrong, right? Christian t-shirts, modesty, wearing a suit. But the question is whether or not we are doing these things like the scribes and the Pharisees to be seen by men. Jesus says the religious leaders were seeking the praise of others through their clothing. But they also sought the praise of others through their position. Look there in verse 6. And they loved the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. In other words, they loved to be seen. They loved to be honored. They loved to be made much of. So they sought the praise of others through their clothing, through their position. Notice also, third, through their titles. Look there in verses 7 to 10. And they loved greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now notice there, are the three titles that Jesus mentions are rabbi, father, and teacher. And we should note here that Jesus is not laying down an absolute prohibition against the use of these titles. For example, Paul says that fathers... Should not provoke their children. So it's not sinful for a child to refer to their male parent as a father. In addition, Timothy speaks about being a father to Timothy, or Paul speaks about being a father to Timothy in the faith. Timothy is his son in the faith. In other words, Paul is like a spiritual mentor to him. Furthermore, the scriptures speak of the gift of teaching, and we're told that the office of pastor teacher is a gift to the church. So again, the issue here is not the titles themselves. Rather, Jesus is concerned about the heart. What is the reason for these titles? Why might one demand that other call them these things, refer to them in these ways? So for example, if you pull up to a church and you discover that the pastor's name is the doctor, reverend, pastor, teacher, bishop, and apostle, Joe... You should probably be concerned. The religious leaders, in all these ways, sought the praise of others and their clothing and their position and their titles. And finally, Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 Jesus declares, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So now Jesus, in contrast to the religious leaders, presents a positive vision for Christian leadership, one marked by humility and the heart of a servant. As one author says, quote, it is in giving service, not in receiving adulation, that true greatness consists, end of quote. Several weeks ago, I preached a sermon entitled, Jesus is the Blessed Man, and we looked at the Beatitudes as a whole, and we saw that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes. We noted that there is no distance between Jesus' life and His teaching, that what Jesus taught was how He lived, and how He lived was what He taught And now, here in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is saying that the religious leaders are the exact opposite. They speak, but they do not do. Now, of course, at this point, it's easy for us to all say, oh, those wicked Pharisees. I sure am glad I'm not like one of them. And, of course, I don't want to create a false sense of guilt among us this morning, but I do think it is important for us to acknowledge that all of us are more like the Pharisees than we first realize or we would like to admit. It's one of the reasons why James says in James chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness For we all stumble in many ways. As James acknowledges here, none of us are perfect, far from it. All of us have talked or taught or preached well beyond what we have lived. I know that is true of me. But as Jesus indicates in Matthew 23 and as James teaches us in James chapter 3, There does need to be a certain authenticity, a certain genuineness, a certain sincerity when it comes to our talking and our doing, when it comes to our teaching and our living, when it comes to our preaching and our practice. What about our religion? If Jesus were to assess the overall trajectory of our lives... Would Jesus say, do what they say, but not as they do? Or would Jesus say, do as they say, and follow their example, because they are not perfect, but they are truly my disciples? First, who are the religious leaders? Second, we'll consider this seven woes pronounced upon the religious leaders. Seven woes pronounced upon the religious leaders. So, we find these in verses 13 through 27, and of course, these are in contrast to the blessings that we see in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. We're going to look at each one of these woes briefly. The first woe is this, a woe for exclusion, a woe for exclusion. Look there in verses 13 and 14, we read these words, "'But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in.'" You remember the first beatitude? The first beatitude is, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" And so we see here there's a parallel. The first beatitude mentions the kingdom of heaven. And the first woe that we find in Matthew 23 mentions the kingdom of heaven. But here Jesus says that the religious leaders shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And why is it that the religious leaders do not enter the kingdom of heaven? And why is it that they are preventing others from entering into the kingdom of heaven? I believe the answer is best found when we go back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason why the religious leaders do not enter into the kingdom of heaven and they prevent others from doing so is because they are not poor in spirit. They're blind to their own sin, and therefore they do not feel their need for a Savior, and they do not cry out for salvation. This is perfectly illustrated and the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, you know, many of you know the story. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple and the Pharisee prays and he says to the Lord, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinful, misguided, broken tax collector. I'm a good person and I know I'm a good person because I'm faithful to fulfill all my religious obligations. I attend services, I tithe, I fast. And then Jesus says that the tax collector bows his head in humility and he prays, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, the tax collector is poor in spirit. And Jesus' conclusion Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, that is the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself, the one who is poor in spirit, will be exalted. Jesus says, woe to the man, woe to the woman, whose faithful religious observance blinds them to their own sin and need for a Savior. Second is a woe for corruption. A woe for corruption. Look there in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he comes, becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, we won't spend as much time on this one. It's actually similar to the first woe. But the irony here is that the religious leaders are supposed to be those who are showing others the way to the kingdom of heaven. Showing them how they might enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here... Jesus says not only do they obstruct others from entering into the kingdom of heaven, when they convert others to their religious practices, they corrupt their souls so that their converts become twice as much a child of hell, Jesus says, as yourselves. I mentioned earlier that the main point I want to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus pronounced blessing over a life of genuine discipleship, but Jesus pronounces woe over a life of vain religious activity. And I chose that word "vain" for a specific reason. The word "vain" has two meanings. It may have more, but it has at least two meanings. The first meaning is useless, empty, hollow. The second meaning is arrogant and prideful. And the religion of the scribes and Pharisees was both. It was empty and hollow and it was arrogant. And what Jesus says here is that the converts of the religious leaders will eventually exceed them. They will exceed their forefathers in the practice of empty religious observances and in their arrogant self-righteousness and pride. Jesus says, Woe, woe to the man or the woman who teaches others empty religion and arrogant pride, rather than teaching them what it means to be poor in spirit and directing them to cry out and to depend upon God's mercy and grace. The third woe is a woe for dishonesty. A woe for dishonesty. Look there in verses 16 to 22. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, of course, the religious leaders' philosophy here on oaths amounts to ethical absurdity. What the religious leaders had, um, what they were teaching was that if someone swears by the temple, then their oath is not binding. So if they swear that something is true or they swear to do something, and then they swear that by the temple, and they are then dishonest, if they don't follow through on their word, well, then you can't blame them. But if they swear by the gold on the temple, well, of course, that is binding. And it would be a sin not to honor that oath. In similar fashion, they say, if anyone swears by the altar at the temple, then that oath is binding. But if you swear by the gift on—I'm sorry—it's not binding. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, well, everyone knows that's different. Then you must tell the truth, and you must do what you say. John MacArthur. John MacArthur has said that this practice amounted to, quote, an arbitrary distinction which gave them a sanctimonious justification for lying without impunity, end of quote. When you were a child, did you ever agree with your friends that you would always, always, always tell the truth unless you crossed your fingers? And then if you do that long enough, you know, we develop all these other specifications like, yeah, but when you uncross your fingers, you have to tell the truth. But if you do it with two hands behind your back, you can lie. Yeah, you know, all these different specifications, right? And that's what the religious leaders were doing. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus denounces the practice of oath-taking. He's denouncing the practice of the religious leaders when He says in chapter 5 of Uh, Matthew, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. In other words, don't play games with the truth. Our words should be such that others don't need for us to take an oath because they are so confident that when we speak, we will always speak the truth. Jesus says, woe to the man or the woman, who devises deceitful schemes, even religious justifications, in order to excuse their dishonesty. The fourth woe is a woe of neglect. A woe of neglect. Look there in verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, the Old Testament law required a tithe, that is that 10% of one's earnings should be given to the Lord as an act of worship. And the Pharisees, they took this requirement so seriously that they would tithe even their herbs or spices that they grew, their mint and dill and cumin. Now notice here in our text, Jesus did not forbid this practice, but rather Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for obsessing over debatable minutia in the law while ignoring the much more obvious and important matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. In fact, Jesus goes on to use a humorous illustration to make his point. He accuses the religious leaders in verse 4 of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You see, according to the Old Testament law, a gnat and a camel were both unclean animals and therefore were not to be eaten. But some of the religious leaders were so concerned that a gnat might fall into their wine and they would drink it and therefore become unclean, that before they drank their wine, they would filter it out by pouring it over a piece of cloth. Jesus says at the same time, by neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness, they were swallowing a camel, which was the largest of all animals in ancient Palestine and was itself unclean. Jesus is concerned that the religious leaders are majoring on the minors, and minoring on the majors. It reminds me of southern churches who at one time condemned playing cards, while at the same time defended slavery or advocated for segregation. I believe Jesus would have said, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? Or how about the fact that killing a bald eagle in our nation can earn you a fine of $100,000 and one year in prison? A second offense can result in a fine of $250,000 and two years in prison. But one can abort a human child in its mother's womb without penalty. I believe Jesus would say, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Or how about a man or a woman who attends church whenever the doors are open? They never miss an event, but they've been harboring a dark grudge against their spouse for years. I believe Jesus would say, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Jesus says here, woe to the man, woe to the woman who prides themselves in meticulously observing the debatable minutia of certain religious practices, while all the while ignoring the essential values of God's Word, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The fifth woe, a woe of uncleanness, a woe of uncleanness. Look there in verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I have a confession to make. Sometimes when I am Doing the dishes, if the dishwasher is full and there's some extra pots and pans to clean, I will clean the inside of the pot really good. Nikki's listening to me right now. I'll clean that's my wife. I'll clean the inside of the pot really good, but I'll just kind of hit the outside. I won't clean it very well. Because the food goes on the inside, right? Or if I'm cleaning a pan, I'll clean the top of the pan really good, but I might not clean the bottom because the food goes on top of the pan, right? Is it that important that the bottom of the pan is clean? I, I see your looks on your face. Don't judge me. I, you know you've done this before, right? <laughs> Jesus says the religious leaders do the exact opposite when, they come to their, when it comes to their spiritual lives. They clean the outside of the cup, but they leave the inside dirty. But it's the inside that really matters, right? Who wants to drink from a cup that's dirty on the inside but clean on the outside? Of course, spiritually speaking, when Jesus is speaking of the inside, He's speaking of their hearts. And we know that the Scriptures teach us that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus says, Woe to the man or the woman who cleans up nice, who presents themselves as honorable and respectable, who may have a sharp sense of style and dress, who can work a room and gain the respect of others. But their hearts are full of unconfessed, unrepentant, habitual sin and immorality. The sixth woe is a woe of hypocrisy. Look there in verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, according to the Old Testament law, contact with a corpse, with a dead body, would render one unclean for seven days. And so it was understood that if a grave was unmarked or unnoticed and a person walked over that grave, then they would be deemed unclean. And so, the graves were often whitewashed and ornately decorated so that when one was passing by, they would take notice of the grave and they would not walk over the grave. However, Jesus points out here that no matter how ornate the tomb or the grave was on the outside, this did not change the fact that inside the grave it was full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And Jesus declares here that the whitewashed tombs represent the religious leaders' lives. Outwardly impressive, but inwardly full of hypocrisy. And we've all done it, haven't we? Maybe before you came to faith in Christ, you had a friend who invited you to church. Or maybe your parents made you come. Or maybe you came just because you thought it was the right thing to do. And you played the part. And you did it well. But you knew that during the week, you were living a completely different life. Jesus says Woe to the one who acts the part of a Christian, but in reality is playing games. And is ultimately living for themselves. The seventh woe is the woe of persecution. Look there in verses 29 to 36. Verse 29, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets.'" Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So the religious leaders prided themselves in honoring the prophets who had come before them. They read their writings. They, in fact, decorated their tombs. They spoke well of them. They assured themselves that they would have never harmed the prophets like their forefathers did. But here's the irony in our passage. That as these religious leaders are doing all of these things to honor the prophets of old, they are plotting the death of the true and great prophet, the Lord Jesus, who is standing right before them. This is why Jesus calls them serpents, you brood of vipers. In other words, serpents and sons of serpents. Jesus says it's always been this way. It's been true of your fathers. It's true of you. From the blood of righteous Abel, which represents the first murder in the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, which represents the last prophet who was murdered in the Old Testament. He says, you have and you are and you will reject the prophets. Jesus says, woe to those who ignore, who mock, who insult, who reject and harass and persecute, who kill those who faithfully testify to the truth of God's Word, even if they do so in the name of religion. So these are the seven woes that Jesus pronounces against the religious leaders. But then third and finally, a word of warning and hope. Look there in verses 37 to 39. We read these words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've seen here in Matthew chapter 23 that there are seven woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And someone has defined a woe as, quote, an exclamation of how greatly one will suffer. An exclamation of how greatly one one will suffer. And contained within a woe is both a warning of disaster and an expression of regret or compassion. So, when Jesus declares woe to the religious leaders, He is both warning of disaster and He is expressing pity or compassion. So we should understand as we work through these woes, and Jesus' words are very strong, right, to, um, in, directed towards the Pharisees, we should understand that Jesus is not happy that judgment will fall upon the religious leaders. He's not happy that judgment is going to fall upon Jerusalem. In fact, inherent within the woe is a sense of regret, a sense of compassion, a sense of pity. And inherent within the woe is an invitation An invitation to turn and repent from their empty religious activity and to truly trust in the Lord Jesus and to follow Him in genuine discipleship. In other words, inherent within the woe is an invitation to all of us to know and to love and to follow the Lord Jesus and thereby to experience the blessed life. I will have to admit that a passage like this scares me. It unsettles me. Because you know what I am. I'm a religious leader. I'm not a scribe or a Pharisee, but I'm a pastor. And last year, some of you know, I even earned another title, Doctor of Ministry. And I see so much of the religious leaders In my own wicked heart. But here's the good news my friends. The Lord Jesus longs to gather us in. In fact right after uttering these words over Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you in. Jesus would then walk the road to the cross. Where he would lay down his life for all those who would trust in him, where he would pay the penalty for their sins and he would be raised from the dead for their salvation. And my friends, what this means is that there is grace and there is hope for us. There's grace and hope for scribes and Pharisees and blind guides and blind fools and hypocrites. There is hope and grace. For those who hide behind empty religious activity in order to conceal the true condition of their sinful hearts. In other words, there's hope for sinners like you and me. And how do we experience this grace? How do we experience this hope? what actually goes back to the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, when we discern the spirit of the Pharisee rising up within us, we must turn from that. We must humble ourselves and we must join the tax collector in crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This, my friends, is the necessary response to escape the life of woe and to experience the life of blessing. This is the way to avoid the path that leads to destruction and to walk the path that leads to life and blessing and eternal salvation. May God give us grace to be poor in spirit and to know this blessed life as we follow the Lord Jesus in genuine Christian discipleship let's pray father we humble ourselves before you and as we reflect upon the woes that Jesus pronounced over the religious leaders we are reminded that the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it lord we pray that you would save us and deliver us from our own sinfulness and hypocrisy from our own double-mindedness And, Lord, we thank You that as we humble ourselves before You, as we look to Christ in faith and depend upon Your grace and mercy, that You are faithful to forgive us, to change us, and to transform us. Lord, set us on the path of genuine discipleship. Save us from self-deception and hypocrisy. Lord, may we be faithful to You And God, when our hearts wander, when we become arrogant and prideful, when we lose sight of what is really matters and what is true, Lord, we pray that you would draw us back to yourself, that once again we would experience your grace and the power of your spirit to transform us and change us. Lord, take your word now and apply it to each of our hearts, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it.